Hi, it's T.C. Doyle, Editor-at-Large here at Informers Channel Futures and Channel Partners. It's been a while since we've uh, reconnected with the Channel Futures podcast, and I'm glad to be back from the hiatus. Since we've been gone, our group has been busy, among other things. We produced one of the largest channel events in history, Channel Partners Las Vegas 2019. That was in April. We attracted 6,200 people to the Mandalay Resort and Convention Center. I promise I either bumped into or tripped over every one of those attendees. What else? We've also recently released the 2019 MSP 501, which you can find at channelfutures.com. It's our strongest lineup of the largest and most progressive MSPs in the market ever. But enough about me and all things here in Informa. In this episode of the Channel Futures Podcast, we're going to talk about two things that matter to you most, securing customers and increasing sales. First up, we have Mark Woodward. He's the CEO of Armor Cloud Security. He's in the hardest market segment of all security, but finds himself in a position in which he understands that he must reorient the company's go-to-market strategy. Mark explains why he believes switching from a direct to an indirect model will help Armor reach its true potential. Uh, Then let's focus on another topic that doesn't get enough attention. That's sales. And I am pleased to say that we have Celeste Lunsford showcased in this episode. She's the managing director of CSO Insights, which is the research arm of sales specialist, the Miller Hyman Group. Celeste is the author of two books, Secrets of Top Performing Salespeople and Strategies That Win Sales. She's also consulted with some of the best names in business, including American Express, the U.S. Department of Defense, Office Depot, Traveler's Insurance, and Verizon Wireless. In this episode, she talks about the new study from her group, 2019 World Class Sales Practices, All That Glitters Is Not Gold. She's warm, funny, and thoughtful in her interview. You're definitely going to want to hear what she has to say about the study and, moreover, the current and future state of selling. As always, we have a lot packed into this episode of the Channel Futures podcast. Hey, it's good to be back. So, uh, Mark Woodward, CEO at Armor Cloud Security. For those that don't know the company, tell us a little bit about uh, it. And if I'm not mistaken, you've been there since, I think, July of a year ago. So it's been about a year, right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm just about to come up on my uh, year anniversary here. In fact, it, it's, it's amazing. It, it seems like it snuck up on me so fast. But, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a great year. I actually have uh, – this is the fourth uh, software company that I've run. I've taken a couple of companies uh, 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 public and actually took both those companies private as well. And uh, wasn't sure I was even going to um, take another operating role. And then I got introduced to the opportunity at Armor and uh, just thought it was something I had to do. So it's been a, it's been a great first year. So cybersecurity, San Francisco, boy, that would have to be attractive. You guys defend data, among other things. But talk about the company, its focus and its direction and where you guys play in the marketplace. Sure. Well, where the company started actually was by providing a um, secure hosted environment. So if you wanted to put an application, run an application in a secure or also compliant uh, footprint or data center, that's what we did. And we did that, you know, very well and and still do that. It's still actually a big part of our business. Um, But as you know, over the last couple of years, I should say, start about four or five years ago, as you started to see the advent of the growth in public cloud and more and more companies migrating applications or uh, developing applications on cloud. The, the kind of conventional wisdom was, 
boy, you know, AWS and Azure and these platforms are going to take over and private cloud is going to be under, uh, you know, under attack and a lot of pressure. And so the company started to expand and looking into providing security for hybrid cloud environments. And so what in fact has happened is that private clouds have continued to thrive and our business there is doing well, but we believe the growth and the opportunity in the future of this company is really being a software technology provider for uh, a hybrid cloud security. And so we have now developed, a, you know, we actually launched about two and a half years ago an entirely, entirely new product for securing cloud. Uh, and what we have found is that as companies migrate uh, to, the, to the cloud or as they stand up new applications in the cloud, that there's a whole lot that they don't know. And they very often enlist partners to help them make that transition or they, they uh, do business with an MSP who you know, basically hosts and provides all the support for that application or a partner that has helped them do that migration. And one of the primary, primary things they look for that partner to provide them with is with a security solution right. um, or security, I should say, as part of the, the service they provide. And so these partners don't want to have to take and stitch together a security product, right? It's a security is a very complex marketplace where there's, a, you know, the last count, 1,500 vendors and just thousands of products. And the complexity of putting together a security solution is very, very high. And so we basically solved that problem by creating a fully integrated platform that provides complete security, data security for customers, you know, running their applications um, virtually in, you know, public cloud, private cloud, or in any, you know, any virtual machine. Very good. So um, I, I like what you say about, you know, people are buying so much product and I use this analogy all the time, but it's like a guy with six different watches. He doesn't know what time it is because they're all slightly different. And, you know, so when someone says, what time is it? So ask a chief information officer, are you secure? I kind of think so. I bought everything I was supposed to. Uh, you've seen this phenomenon right. as well. Drill down a little bit on that. Sure. Well, yeah, one of the things is that there, as you said, there are in security specifically, there's so many different things you need to think about. You know, we need to think about, am I, is, is my Windows environment patched correctly? You know, do I, uh, are, my fire, are my firewall rules correct? Do I even know, do I even know what to secure in the public cloud environment? Do you even know what an S3 bucket is? And if that's exposed to the internet, what does that mean to you? I mean, it's, there's so many different things and there's so many different pieces of technology that solve such small parts of the, of the overall problem. And then, you know, once you have all these, you know, you have, you have, you have things that, you know, that also produce log information and um, you have things that are looking at your file integrity, you've got malware, you've got antivirus. And sometimes what you need to do is you need to connect the dots between five or six different points to really understand, do I really have a problem? Because, you know, another part of the problem in security is just the level of noise, right? The level, of, the level and number of alerts that are created by all these different technologies and understanding like it's it's not it's not possible for humans to consume all that information. Right. So and so how do I know what I even need to be paying attention to? So I've got all these products that don't work together that I need to kind of look at them more holistically. They're all producing a ton of information, and how do I even know what to look at and what really matters? So you know it's it's a, it's a very complex problem. Yeah. All right. So we're here today to talk about a new uh, release that you guys put out. Armor launches newly enhanced global partner program to address rapidly changing business needs in cloud security. Hey, good headline. Wish I would have wrote it. Um, but let's but let's keep framing the problem. Two universal truths I've come to know. Uh, no one is checking their 
uh, backups to make sure that they're not infected. And that's one truth, but it's another problem. But the other one is, you know, you talk to uh, owners of small businesses, uh, chief information officers of midsize and enterprise companies, and they're, they're all, you touched on it. Nobody told me I had to protect my data if I was using AWS, Google Azure. Touch right. a little bit about right. that problem. Well, it's interesting, you know, and, 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 and those public cloud providers don't do a great job of explaining that problem either. Um, there, there's something that's known as a shared responsibility matrix, and it basically says they protect the physical infrastructure. It's up to you to protect your data. Um, and so that is exactly where we fit in. Now, now, these companies are starting to do a better job of providing security tools or at least some things that help you understand um, you know, what your exposures are and where, you know, if you may have a security problem. But, you know, getting back to the complexity conversation, most companies are not running everything on a single cloud. You know, they're either using multiple public clouds, they're using a combination of public cloud and private cloud, and they all have different types of security. So as you would imagine, AWS does nothing to give you any security information except for your AWS environment and Microsoft only for the Microsoft Azure environment and Google for only the Google Cloud environment, right? And so you don't, the IT professional or the security professional doesn't want to have to have a different security solution for each different platform. That's just crazy, right? So it's again, that's where we come in. Right. That not only do we provide the security that is not provided by those vendors, but we provide a single solution for all those different platforms. Very good. All right, so let's talk about your go-to-market model. Do you guys sell exclusively through partners, mostly? Is it a supplement or complement to your overall strategy? Talk about your relationship with partners, and then we'll segue to the new announcement that you've made this week. Sure, and, that, and that, that's, kind of, that's kind of why we're here to talk. So historically, the company has been a primarily direct in terms of go-to-market. Now, we have had you know, kind of a partner program uh, that's been, you know, that's been available to, to companies or partners for many years. But the way that we approach partners in the past had more been kind of supplementing our direct sales efforts, right? So a partner would come to us and say, oh, hey, I have a, you know, I got a customer that wants to buy your stuff. Um, let's go together and go sell this customer. We give the partner 10 points. It's right. more, it was more focused on resellers. It really wasn't very strategic. And it was more of a direct sales uh, motion. So that has been the past. Um, the launch of this program is really around a complete, it's not, it's not just that we've decided to launch a new partner program with some new bells and whistles. We really changed the strategy of the company. So from a go-to-market strategy standpoint, you know, we are switching very consciously from a direct sales motion to a very much partner-centric model. And when I say partner-centric, I mean, if I could snap my fingers tomorrow, we would be, our armor would be a technology provider of a security solution to partners and all of our business would go through that partner network. So I mean, that's, that's kind of the kind of transition we're talking about is, is how we, as a company, support a partner-centric model. So it changes the way we sell, it changes the way that we market, it changes the way we develop our products, it changes how we do our support. So we as a company are really changing as fast as we can to be completely customer focused, I'm sorry, partner focused and partner centric in terms of our, our go to market model. Well, that's easy. All you do is click your fingers. So you're done. So what's the problem? So how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it takes that's a culture change. That's personnel. Those are new skill sets, new go to market motions. Touch a little bit about what you guys are doing in those regards. 
Yeah, so I mean, you're exactly right. So we've, we've hired a new uh, vice president of Channels and Alliances who actually starts July 15th. You know, we've been doing that search for a couple of months. Um, we were fortunate to have a very large number of really qualified candidates and were, you know, had a choice of just uh, a number of people who could have done the job very well. We fortunately got our, our number one candidate. Um, we've hired Leah, who's on the phone with us right now, who's got a ton of experience doing product marketing. So we've now developed, a, a, you know, w- within our marketing organization, we're investing in a very specific um, a, a line of people that are, that are focused just on partner marketing. Uh, we've, you know, you've heard that, uh, you know, the big thing for years now is that it's part of how you support companies in the SaaS business model, it's because it's not just about selling a customer a product, they got to keep using the product, because if they stop using the product, they can also stop paying you typically, right? So right. they need, you need, they need to be happy and you need to keep them happy. So, you know, the thing that's in vogue today is you create customer success organizations. Well, we're now, we've created a partner success organization. So we have people, you know, support people, customer success people, if you will, that are completely focused on the partner experience and the unique things that a partner needs to be supported by, right? So um, that also means we're creating a ton of content that some of our direct sales people and also specifically for our partners on how do you enable a partner? So it's not only how do you enable, enable them to market your product, how you enable them to sell your product, how do you enable them to, uh, you know, technically understand your product, how do you enable them to support your product? I mean, how can they be completely independent? Where again, we, we are a technology provider to them and we, you know, teach them and give them all the resources necessary to be self-sufficient. So we've, you know, hired all the people that are developing uh, content very specific to you know all the things that our partners are going to need to be successful with our product, so it is it is a significant investment, like you say, all across all across the board, and and, and it affects very much uh, how we are developing our product now. Because in the past, you know, when you think of your a direct customer, an end user as your customer, you're developing features and functions, you know, where we are the operator. Well, we want the partners to be the operator. We want them to have full control over the customer experience. Therefore. You know, there's things that we need to do that have, you know, things that have been on the roadmap for a while, but always continued, you know, kind of seem to get pushed down the roadmap or pushed down the priority list because other features and functions that our direct customers uh, were wanting, you know, we've now, you know, turned that upside down. And, the, you know, the primary um, primary uh, driver for what how we develop and or what we develop in our product today is driven by requirements from our partner community. All right, fair enough. Um, I'm a partner. I am a managed service provider. Pick a city. I'm in Cincinnati. I'm in Indianapolis. I'm in Spokane, Washington. I like the message. I like what I'm hearing. I don't have the wherewithal to build out my own secure operations center. I can't hire a CISO if I, you know, try. The, the prices are too much. I don't have the skill set. Can I reliably look? How much can I dump to you guys and then look to my customers and says, yep, I got your back here. Talk about your philosophy. Where will you guys help these partners step in and where won't you guys play that they need to know about? Yeah, great question. So, uh, yeah, our, we've got, you know, you know our 24-7-365 man sock. Um, and, uh, we basically, it, it depends on the partner, right? So if it's um, an MSSP that does have their own SOC, they want to have their own SOC, but they clearly need to integrate with us, we will basically, their SOC can work directly with our SOC, and that's how we provide that service. If it's an MSP or an IT solutions provider or cloud migration partner where they don't have a SOC, they don't want a SOC, you know, then then 100% that customer can rely on the Armor SOC uh, for, those, for those functions. So how either the 
the, you know, the partner wants to play. If they have a stock, they can rely on ours when they need to. If they don't have a stock, then that then they can the customer can use ours. Very good. Um, as you guys go forward, you're making the transition. You've hired some new personnel, put the programs properly in place. You, I can hear it in your voice. You've got the right cultural mindset to be partner centric. Three years from now, what percent of your sales will be direct? What percent will be partner led? Yeah, so today, our, our goal for this year is for 40% of our, our new business to come through partners. Um, I think we're probably at around 30 right now, and I hope to exit the year at 40. Our goal here over the next couple of years is, is to get to about 65% of our business through partners. Um, I'd like for it to be even more, but I think there's probably a segment of the market will continue to just take direct customers. Some people just want to buy from us directly. Um, but I think, you know, that 65, maybe even 70% range is where I would love it to be in a couple of years. Wow. That's amazing. That's quite a transformation. All right. So I'm going to ask a question to Leah here in a sec. Leah, the question I'm going to ask is with all your experience from Cisco and other places, uh, what was it that you saw that attracted you to the company? But Mark, I'm going to give her a sec to, it's not fair to put her on the spot. So let's give you a question. Let's segue to the landscape itself. How is the threat vector changing? What are new things that are happening for customers and partners? You know, you're plugged in. You see it all. What's going on? What's the latest? You know, I, one of the things we're seeing is a continued rise in ransomware, right? You, the very visible thing that happened in the city of Baltimore, right? It, yeah. Those are happening Shocking. every day. And, and yeah, and, the bad and, guys and have been monetized. Yeah, I, yeah. Go I, ahead. I think there were five. There were five new ones last week. So it's, you know, ransomware. Ransomware is a big one. Um, and it's just. You know, one thing we've already touched on, and it just continues to get worse and worse and worse, is just the increasing complexity of the environment and what companies need to do to protect themselves, right? And that's one of the advantages you get with Armor is that, you know, we have 1,200 customers, and we see all of the security events for all of those customers. So our, our entire customer base benefits from our whole, the whole Armor community, if you will, right? So, you know, in, in any given month, we see somewhere between 250 and 300 million security alerts and events, and that we that we look through and we we uh, uh, you know figure out what is it we're seeing. Some of the most pervasive ransomware attacks, we are actually the company that provided the solutions to those. So WannaCry is one of them, and so you know we're 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 very much on top of um, you know what's happening in 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 the world of cybersecurity, what those what those new threats are. You know, we're constantly searching through the dark web, you know, just trying to understand the kind of tools that are available for people to use. Um, you know, the person that runs our security operations center, you know, was a longtime former NSA person. So we've got a lot of those kind of guys with us. Uh, so one of the advantages we actually have, again, to one of the challenges in the security industry is the ability to attract and retain high quality talent. Um, because the number of people that are available to do that kind of work is a very finite number. And those people want to go to work to places that are exciting and interesting to them. So fortunately for us is that those kind of people want to work at a place like Armor because of what I just said. You know, we're seeing 300 million security events a month. So this is like, you know, this is the center of if you're a cybersecurity guy, um, this is the place you want to work as opposed to being inside a corporation, you know, and you're part, you're part of a, a small security team, yeah. just seeing events coming from that one company. But that, that shortage of talent and the ability um, to retain that talent is also, uh, you know, an increasing, increasing problem for, for companies as yeah, well. Yeah, well put. All right, so Mark, we're going to go to Leah here, but 
I want to come back to you to take us to a close. It's a holiday weekend. People start thinking of uh, downtime, personal time, but they also start thinking about giving back. And I want to ask you, as a board member with All Stars Helping Kids, what that organization is about. Talk a little bit about your work. But let's first go to Leah. Leah, you know, it's there's the, uh, the famous Dave Barry line, the author, who says... Uh, if you go to a college that suddenly becomes a, a your, your degree becomes more valuable as that college uh, gets more credible. And you and I both had time at Cisco and the stock was parked at 23 for how many years? Now we're in the 54. So now your resume is hot as fire. You could have picked a job anywhere. What was it about this company that uh, attracted you? What do you like about it? What was the culture? What was the market opportunity? Take the question any way you want. Thanks, TC. Um, yeah, it, honestly, it was their their approach and how Armour really understands the space, especially with the convergence of cloud and security that we've been seeing over the last few years and the type of partners that they were going after, um, who I believe will be very beneficial as um we look to continue to support our customers in the areas of um, securing their cloud and their data and specifically to all the work that they've done with the cloud service providers such as AWS and others. Um, and just being able to come to a company where you can work across the channel partners and the cloud service providers and other um, partners where it's a triple play effect almost um, has been really appealing. I mean, I moved from Silicon Valley to Texas for this company. I see a lot of great potential and a lot of um, exciting opportunity ahead for us to continue to help our channel partners as they're evolving their business models too and provide them with the right um, elements in the program that can help them be successful as an extended armor sales team. That's fantastic. All right, so Mark, it's a holiday weekend. A lot of people are thinking about other things other than work. You've got the... Uh, UK and uh, what, do you got a score update for us? You can tell us. Yeah, really? UK England just scored, but oh, they're checking to see if she was offside. No goal. She was offside, so it's right. still two one. Still two to one. Yeah. All right, here we go. So then, uh, let's focus. All stars helping kids. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Your involvement. What do we need to know about the organization? Yeah, yeah it's a super interesting approach to how we how we help um, uh, other charities. So we basically uh, the approach that we take is that we act like a venture capital firm funding uh, startup um, different charities that provide services mostly to disadvantaged youth um, that, you know, they're either, you know, helping them with um, things related to their school or just helping, you know, give them, giving them advantages to get ahead uh, when they come from underprivileged backgrounds and just, you know, just difficult home family situations. And, and so I've been involved with the with uh, All Stars now for I think about four years or so. Um, I've known Ronnie Lott for quite a long time. Um, he's a you know great guy, former you know Hall of Fame player, former 49er uh, uh, defensive end, or uh, I'm sorry, defensive back, and he's just a just a great guy. And he and his wife started this foundation uh, over 20 years ago. Um, but it's really interesting the approach that we take is that we allow these our, our grantees apply for grants. We pull them into a three-year program and we give them we guarantee them funding for three years. We also create a community between all these other companies and between expertise for people, people on our board. And we provide these, these, um, uh, these different charities or foundations with not only money, but assistance to grow and thrive um, with you know, whatever it is their, uh, their specific um, service that they provide us. Um, so it's, uh, we, we currently have um, 
I believe uh, I, I get the number confused sometimes because they're all in different three-year cycles. We've got 10 or 12 grantees right now that we currently fund, oh, and we're wonderful. looking to take on uh, three more. So we continue to look for ways to, to raise more raise more money um, because we're because we, we guarantee, as I said, three years of funding for all of our all of our grantees. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, Mark. Thanks to you and your extended team for getting us together. We've been chatting with Leah McLean. McLean, how do you pronounce it, Leah? Help me out. McLean, you had You're, it right. Uh, she is the new head of partner program marketing at Armor Cloud Security. And of course, we've been chatting with uh, Mark Woodward, CEO, who had other things he could have been doing, but saw a huge opportunity here. And of course, he's in the right space helping partners out. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Yep, thank you. Uh -huh. From security and go-to-market strategies, now let's focus on sales, world-class sales excellence in particular. On the line with us is Celeste Lunsford. She is the Chief Research Officer and Managing Director of CSO Insights at Miller Hyman Group. Celeste, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Well, you have a new report. We want to get to that in a second. It's the 2019 World-Class Sales Practices Study. All that glitters is not gold. Amazing insights. It's a long report, but if you're in sales, you're definitely going to want to download it. I'll include a link to it on our uh, story that accompanies this broadcast. But Celeste, for those that don't know you or your organization, give a little bit about your organization, then we'll talk about you in particular, and then we'll get to the study. So tell us about the Miller Hyman Group. Absolutely. So CSO Insights is the research division of Miller-Hyman Group, and CSO Insights has existed for a little over 22 years at this point. Um, we work within Miller-Hyman Group, but our research is independent. So what I mean by that is we don't just survey Miller-Hyman Group employees and we don't, or customers, and we don't look at, um, you know, like Miller-Hyman Group products. We look at the marketplace as a whole. And what we're looking for is what kind of data do sales leaders and sales enablement leaders and sales ops leaders need when they're making decisions. So we conduct these broad surveys around the world, and we look for two different kinds of data. One is practice-oriented. So what are people doing, and how effective are they at it? And the second is the operational results, the metrics. And we compare the two and try to get a handle on what is changing from year to year. So what's, what's a blip in the data? What's a real trend? And what seem to be the practices that have the most impact on ultimately the numbers at the end? Very good. Now, for those that don't know the organization, it's global in nature and it works with some of the finest organizations, not just in tech, but you yourself have worked with American Express, Citibank, the U.S. Department of Defense and others. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for this particular study, I think you guys polled more than 900 sales leaders. Uh, you came away with 12 best practices that I'm quoting from the release that correlate most strongly with sales performance. One of the things that jumped out at me is there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on here. On one hand, right. you point out at the top, things look good, but may not be. Let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. So what I mentioned is we, we focus on these metrics, and we pick a set of seven metrics because we find that they're the metrics that organizations more or less tend to define similarly and that they know fairly accurately. What we look at is voluntary and involuntary attrition. We look at win, loss, and no decision rates. Then we look at quota attainment, the number of salespeople, the percent that are making or exceeding the goal. Then we look at how you did against your overall goal. And we look at those every year. 
we do this particular report every two years. And two years ago when we did it, the quota attainment, the percentage of sellers that are making or exceeding goal, was the lowest it had been in like five or six years. And it kept dropping. It was approaching this all-time low. So it was a bit of a doom and gloom message. What was, on the surface at least, encouraging is when you look at this year's data, it's, it's rebounded a bit. It's still, not, it's still not fantastic, but it's around that you know, 57% rate. You're aiming for somewhere in the, the mid to late 60s. So we see it rebounding, and we saw the percentage of revenue plan attainment, so how close did you get to the number, that increased for the third time in a row. So on the surface, like, okay, so maybe things have gotten a bit better since it was two years ago, and certainly the, the end results have gotten better. What was interesting, though, and that's where the dissonance comes into play, is some of the leading factors that you would expect to be on the same trajectory, they were flat or decreasing. So things like conversion rates or win rates, um, uh, customer satisfaction, um, customer retention, seller behaviors and practices, all of those are flat or declining in that same two-year period. So a question that comes to mind, if I'm Nate Silverman, I'm going to be all over this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. How much of that, though, is tied to the economy and how much of that is tied to some of the psychographics and demographics of those that go into sales? They're perpetually and eternally optimistic. But when you tease out the numbers, what are you finding? So there's two things in there, one of which is the economy has gone up in that same two-year period of time. So if you look at the global GDP, which is sort of an aggregate of the GDP of 153 different countries, the World Bank does it, it was up 10% in that same period of time. Another study that we do is called Buyer Preferences, where we reach out and we talk to B2B buyers, and we find out how do they view their salespeople and what are the kinds of things that they value. And what they've been telling us increasingly is, I don't have anything against my salespeople. Like, I'm not negative towards salespeople, but I'm really not all that impressed at all. So when I need a salesperson, sure, I'll call one, but I don't need one until much later in the process. Right. And so that's where you see like those, those lagging indicators of the percentage of salespeople making gold and the overall number. They're being bolstered by the economy, but all that leading indicator stuff is really being depressed by the fact that these B2B buyers really are changing and their expectations are getting harder for sellers to keep up with. So the concern is, okay, let's say the economy doesn't go to recession. There's always some, some fear-mongering about recession, but let's just say it stops growing at 10% every two years and it's 5% or it's 4%. Well, now you start to have this vulnerability when what I'm learning is my sales effectiveness and efficiency isn't keeping up with what buyers want. I can't ride, I can't keep growing through reach and I can't keep riding a good economy. It's just not scalable. Understood. Okay. So we're going to get to some of the individual findings here in a second. But one thing that did jump out at sure. me is this classic battle between marketing and sales. And this leapt out at me, and I'm going to quote Always. from the report. In many organizations, marketing owns value messaging, which can result in the creation yep. of more marketing messages than actual sales messages. So give me your <laughs> intake on that healthy tension between those two valuable parts of the organization. Absolutely. So it's interesting in that as we've done this study, we see the lines between sales and marketing blurring a bit. So what you would have said is in the past that sales does one-to-one. -one connection, right? And marketing does one to many. So marketing will blast an email to 500,000 people and a seller will talk to five. 
But increasingly, it's not really how it works. As, as people have changed, what you find is that marketing is more likely to do account-based marketing than the sales organizations. They're doing a lot of ABM, one-to-one, specific contact reach-outs. On the flip side, you've got salespeople who are worried about their personal brand. They're connecting through social selling. They're using outreach and engagement tools to talk to 100 people at once. And so really that, that sales and marketing difference isn't as distinct as it used to be. But it doesn't mean that they're working together any more productively than they used to be. Um, we still find that less than a third of organizations say that they can honestly agree that their sales and marketing departments have the same definition of, of what a lead is. So we continue to see that um, it's, they're just the points of view that they have are so different. So when you take something like value messaging, marketing is creating something that's usually pre-funnel and uh, targeted at a very wide swath of people, whoever they've defined as a, as a market segment. And what salespeople are saying is, no, I need something that works inside my sales process because I'm at the proposed stage of a sales process and I need some value messaging and some content that works for these specific kinds of buyers in these industries at this point in my sales process. And that's just a completely different thing. Right. So I'm going to conflate two different things and maybe you can tease this out. So on one hand, I hear that message. There needs to be better coordination between sales and marketing. But yeah. then, then you also talk about in the study, keep management operations and enablement distinct. So I know yeah. I'm conflating a couple of things, but maybe you can address okay. the, the differences. Yeah, please, because I'm not in sales. Yeah, I'm an editor. <laughs> <laughs> no, perfect. So from a sales and marketing perspective, the challenge is structurally they tend to report to two different people, and it's really hard to keep them aligned because they just have, they're judged on different things. So sometimes when you're talking about sales and marketing, it's you get them aligned by pointing them in the same direction. You say, hey, you guys work off the same set of customer data, the same point of view on customer experience. And even if you don't talk to each other, by definition, you should get more closely aligned. The management and the sales ops and the sales enablement piece is in some ways easier because typically all three of those organizations report right up into the chief sales officer, the chief revenue officer. So they're within the same house. So ideally, they are already aligned against the same strategy. The challenge with them is that those are three functions within sales that are incredibly overworked, right? So everything has to flow through them, and they're working very fast. And what happens is they're probably not philosophically aligned, where sometimes I think sales and marketing can get that way. Right. It's just that they're working so fast and doing so much, they get out of sync. And so what happens if I'm a salesperson, I'm, you know, going about my life and trying to make my number and do my things. I get an email one day from sales enablement saying, hey, you need to participate in this training or, hey, you need to do this in the content management system or there's something else you need to do. And then literally that afternoon, I'll get something from sales ops. that so they'll be like, hey, we've changed a field in the CRM and you need to go in and tag the accounts that you want to keep. And then my manager is all over me about my funnel and my forecast. So I get all this information and it's on me as the individual salesperson to kind of prioritize that and glue it together and say, well, is enablement trying to teach me that thing that ops is talking about? And how does that get reflected in the conversation I need to have with my manager? And if those three departments aren't really collaborating well and in sync, what happens is you push that burden of being in sync down to those frontline salespeople. And that's a hard thing to try to manage. And they just sort of pick What's going to get me my number? What's going to get me yelled right. at? And that's the thing I'm going to focus on. i got to let go of the rest. 
So how? So that's a great stepping off point because one of the findings mm-hmm. is that 21% of organizations felt they only had effective ongoing enablement beyond onboarding. That's right from right. the study itself. Right. So let's talk about talent development. What do you see as some of the trends and uh, trends, excuse me, and some of the best practices? Yeah, great question. So it, traditionally, talent was more of a, a numbers game and an HR game. So I've got to recruit a lot of salespeople because by definition of sales, I'm going to have attrition. I've got to do it through HR because I want to make sure the decisions I'm making are legally defensible. Increasingly, talent now lives with the chief sales officer who's thinking of it more as a strategy, just like they would think about their go-to-market strategy and really thinking, how do I structure my talent and how do I optimize what I'm getting out of them and who are the people going to fuel the future of my organization. And it's interesting because as we see people get more scientific, more data-based about it, a little bit more strategic, they're changing their profiles. And this would be the minority, right? So not everybody has gotten there. But the people that are starting to look at this are seeing that the people they want to bring into their organization, it's not just the traditional are they good with people, right? Do they have emotional intelligence? Do they have um, the ability to create relationships? It's things like um, intellectual curiosity and learning agility and can they manage change and be change capable, those sorts of things. And for listeners, there's a whole section where she drills down a little bit deeper about talent strategy. There's some fascinating numbers. You're going to definitely want to check it out. I want to move ahead to, you know, Uh, A couple of things about the future of sales, whether or not the millennials are flocking to this. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. I've peppered you and bounced you around. Is there one finding that in the study, though, that jumped out at you that uh, you'd you'd like to leave my listeners to? Um, The one that struck me, I think, that I I perhaps didn't expect is there is this, the one that you mentioned about continuous development being part of a sales organization's culture. And compared to some of the others, that one's a bit squishy. So what I mean by that is some of the things that we found talked about forecasting rigor, or they talked about structural alignment. Um, They talked about sales calls and opportunity planning and management, the typical things you would expect. It surprised me that this idea of, you know, our culture supports continuous development popped in the top 12, and it was so strongly correlated to not just attrition, but actual revenue numbers. And I think that speaks to organizations are are coming around to this idea that they have to be this, you know, perpetually changing, and they have to be about hiring people who thrive in that kind of world. And those kind of people, they want to be developed, not just help me sell your products better, but help me be a better like master of my craft. And so it was interesting to me because that one in particular is a bit uh, less tangible than some of the others. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's interesting. There's, there's a whole lot to talk mm-hmm. back in there, but all right. So then let's pull the lens back in the last few minutes that we have. Um, What do you see happening in sales in general? Are younger people seeing Mm -hmm. this as a career path the way that maybe some of us boomers or maybe some of us uh, Gen Xers saw it? Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, two years ago, we did a study and we talked to about a thousand salespeople. And it was people, you know, sort of second and third, sometimes first sales job. And we said, okay, knowing what you know now, would you recommend sales as a career? And 85% of them said yes, which was sort of an overwhelmingly positive response. 
And we asked, like, why? So help us understand what is so positive about it. And what was interesting is that um, the revenue, of course, and the commission came in there, but it wasn't until, like, I don't know, like fourth or fifth or something like that. The more important things that they put on the list were the kinds of attributes that do um, appeal to people of different generations. So it was things like, this is a varied job. Every day of your life as a salesperson is different, right? So you interact with different customers. You're at different parts of the sales process with different people. You're never bored. Um, it's the fact that you can learn forever because no matter which organization you end up with and for how long, you're learning new products, so you're learning new markets, you're learning new pieces of the sales process, and you have autonomy. And so for most sales jobs, there's a certain degree of autonomy of determining how am I going to spend my day and how am I going to go after my number. And all those things appeal to a, a range of generations. So we were – and what they all said is, yeah, of course it's hard wasn't hard it wouldn't be lucrative right, right. so we right. get that but it's but it's fulfilling and so we found that you know comforting in the, in the midst of all this other data that says wow this is kind of a tough time to be in sales <laughs> the salespeople themselves were like yeah but it's it's still energizing uh, all right so i'm going to ask you two last questions and let you go and of course we're talking with celeste lunsford she's the research officer and managing director of cso insights at the miller hyman group so how did you get into this and if you weren't doing this what else would you be doing <laughs> oh geez those are tough questions so um i've been in the sales effectiveness space for gosh a little over 20 years now i started very very young i should point out and um, I, what I enjoy about where we are with sales performance and why I ended up here is uh, the science behind it and that it really is a lot more complex than I think people on the outside give it credit for. Um, the process that's involved, the rigor, the data, the decision-making, um, people who don't have any direct reports and a frontline salesperson have huge business responsibilities. So that's always what I've found fascinating about it is I think on the outside it looks deceptively simple and the closer you get to the inside, the more you appreciate just how challenging and complex it is. Um, if I weren't here, so my background is in sales effectiveness consultant. I was always, I've done sales, but then I quickly moved into a consulting career where I was helping people redefine their sales process and that kind of stuff. I've landed at CSO Insights because I'm a data geek and we have tons of that and I have a real good sense for having been the person who's been redefining the sales process and such, how it should work. If I wasn't doing this, um, I shouldn't tell my boss if I won the lottery. I would leave. I would go like work with animal charities and things oh, like that. I would do. Oh. I would take all of these business skills and sales skills that I have, and I would go fundraise and do something like that with it. Oh, what a wonderful place to end. Well, Celeste, I can't thank you enough for your time. <laughs> this has been fabulous, and I, I love that. You know, my whole life long, I've been asking questions. This is my professional career. I can ask anybody anything. Yeah. But one question I've never had to ask is give me your money. And I respect people who do that uh, for a living every day. I've never had, shall we say, what it takes to do that. And uh, there's a healthy respect. Mm -hmm. So those that help advise, counsel, and uh, educate those that do that, I, 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 uh, I'm very grateful for your time. And that's wonderful stuff. So Celeste, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Channel Futures podcast. I want to thank you for listening in. Hey, if you'd like to be a guest in an upcoming episode or have a comment, drop me a line at thomas.doyle at informa.com. 
Uh, for more episodes, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or check us out on SoundCloud. As always, this is T.C. Doyle. Thanks for tuning in.